Adam Gopnik has been writing for The New Yorker since 1986. He's a three-time winner of the National Magazine Award for Essays and for Criticism, and in March 2013, Gopnik was awarded the Medal of Chevalier of the Order of Arts and Letters by the French Republic. He lives in New York with his wife and their two children. We are in Montreal at the Blue Met Literary Festival. Welcome to the Bibliophile. It's a pleasure to be here. I want to start with bookstores, as you do in the book that we're going to be talking about, which is At the Stranger's Gate, a memoir slash art criticism book. Slash essays slash little micro-anthropologies about the fashionable world and the, uh, what else is in there, the fashion magazines and uh, restaurants and beyond. Now, despite being requested or ordered admonished not to go to a bookstore by your wife on your wedding day and during labor. Absolutely. So you're establishing your bona fides with me as a bibliophile. I'm a totally obsessed reader, and this was not a joke. Martha was, my wife, is genuinely concerned because she knows that if I pass by a bookstore, I'm drawn in like some cartoon character, you know, the cartoon mouse smells the cheese, and you can see tangibly the cloud of aroma that draws the mouse on, and I'm like that around bookstores. I just have to go into a bookstore. The tragedy, of course, and tragedy is not too big a word within the context of it not being tragic, uh, is that, of course, that most bookstores in New York City, at least, have vanished now. Mm -hmm. So where there used to be three bookstores in a radius of five blocks of our apartment, there now is one. It's now one. Yeah. Weirdly, it's the same one that I actually went to when Martha was in labor. Okay. It's called the Corner Bookstore at 93rd and Madison. Right. And uh, I, uh, I went there. Martha was, uh, had you know, gone to the labor early in the morning. And we didn't much like the obstetrician who was being um, obnoxious as obstetricians can be. I dare say, from his point of view, he was dealing with two hysterical people who had never had a baby before. One had never had a baby before, and the other had never watched a baby being had before. Uh, and therefore was more or less I kind of stormed out of the place and said, well, I'll just go, uh, you know, uh, walk around the block. But walking around the block involved, or I chose to let it involve going into yeah. a bookstore. And I remember the book that I found there. It was a beautiful copy of Santayana's, um, I think it was The Theory of Beauty. And I, but you I, made it back in time. I Just in time. But yeah. what I wasn't aware of, because time stops for me in bookstores. I mean, that both in the simple practical sense that I forget how long I've been there, and in the more metaphysical sense that that's what you go to a bookstore for, is to you know bathe in times past. And I, Martha was getting hysterical because she didn't know where I got to. <laughs> and she kept hearing you know ambulances pulling into the hospital, of course, as they will. And she was sure that in my, uh, in my combination of abstraction and anger, I had been run over and that you know the ultimate karmic irony had happened that I had been run over on the very day of the birth of our son but of course nothing like that had happened I got back there and the panic had sufficiently dilated her that Luke our son was born about an hour later very good so happily ever after happily yeah. happily to this point yes yeah. you don't really touch on bookstores much beyond that in this as I said at the beginning memoir there's also short biographies in this book mm -hmm. And there's art criticism, so I'd like to uh, break our conversation down into those three categories. Uh, there's also wise counsel, advice, and some really lovely phrases, sentences that you've structured that have stuck with me, so I want to at the end to, to go with those. Uh, but let's start with art criticism. Your premise is that art traps time, uh, that it registers... Uh, fundamental vibration. I'd also argue that it predicts the future. So you look at the 1980s where art becomes bullion and I'm with Robert Hughes who sees much of this art as opportunistic crap despite accurately capturing the zeitgeist. You I think try to defend in some cases at least and praise this art. Is that true? Yeah, you know, what I was trying to represent there was a kind of argument that Bob Hughes, you know, blessed memory, and I had for, well, we had it from when we met in 1984 until he died uh, just a few years ago. When did Bob die now? I guess in about 2011, something like that. Mm -hmm. 
So yeah, we had an ongoing argument. I was very much in, uh, hugely impressed, how could one not be, by his argument at that time. Yeah. And I became something of a scold myself about the the absurdities of the art market, which are indeed absurd, and the, to use your word, the opportunism of, of some artists, which who were indeed opportunistic. Um, but I guess in retrospect, I, I regret to some degree being a young scold about, about a lot of that art. Not that I would uh, reject my own uh, criticism of it, which was very vehement at the time and I think remains sound in lots of ways. I don't care for uh, narrowly politicized art because I don't think, I think it's too easy to do. You can politicize the art world in an instant, but you haven't actually accomplished anything uh, because politics aren't slogans and sloganeering isn't uh, uh, argument. Uh, and at the same time, you know, a lot of the stuff that became hugely uh, popular then and is even more popular now, uh, take an example of more or less at random, uh, Basquiat, Jean-Michel Basquiat's mm. stuff, I was very hard on then and I think I was right. It's sloppy, um, imperfect, if you want um, true primitivism, you look at other places. I, I remember saying at the time that it reminded me very much of the music of Michael Jackson, the painting of, of Basquiat, which is not to say that it was bad, mm -hmm. it just was shallow, and I still mm -hmm. feel that way. At the same time, I do recognize now that in retrospect, I'm giving you a very long answer to a short <laughs> question. But I'm, I'm going to ask a lot of short questions. So. Uh, I'll try and make the answers shorter. But it's a complicated, uh, complicated yes, absolutely. Um, yeah. uh, tale to tell. The, at the same time, I recognize now that when you look at that work, you see the time that it came from. And I don't just mean in a nostalgic way, in the way mm -hmm. you see the, you know, the 1960s, if you look at old TV commercials. I mean that the, the things, the contradictions of that time are very much in that art. Some of it in ways that are enormously potent, and I think will go on being potent, in Eric Fischel's painting or David Sala's painting. In other people's stuff, in in or in Cindy Sherman's uh, movie stills, and other people's work, less so. But I think in general, it's a bad idea to bet against the art of your time. I think almost invariably, what tends to happen is that the bad stuff gets winnowed out. And what do you, what do you mean by bet, though? Like bet that it's going to stay around, or bet that it's going to be valuable, or what? No, not bet that it's going to be valuable. That's a whole other yeah. set of of questions. No, bet that it isn't significant in some way. And I say this with total guilt, you know, because the truth is is that I'm almost completely detached from the art world now. Uh, I, For years, I still did my Saturday uh, tour on, in Chelsea and so on. Don't do it really anymore. My little brother, Blake, is a full-time art critic, and he's the real avant-garde deal. You know, you mm -hmm. can't wave a piece of video art in the depths of Brooklyn at him without him hopping on the subway and going to evaluate it. Mm -hmm. There's this wonderful thing called the Daily Pick, where he takes some image or work of art from someplace in the, in some, sometimes from the classics, but often from the avant-garde. Where does and he do that? The, the Daily Pick now, I think it's on Artnet, or it's one of those okay. kind of mm -hmm. uh, umbrella sites. Anyway, uh, I should add that he's a scholar, much more of a scholar than I am, is writing a biography of Andy Warhol now. But anyway, I just mean that you know, you can detach yourself from it because it no longer speaks to you. Is, uh, to take another instance, uh, I am totally detached from hip-hop music. I love popular music. I write songs, musical theater. It's my great passion. I, I, hip-hop, Kendrick Lamar, even at its eyes, just doesn't speak to my condition. But I also recognize that it speaks to this condition. It speaks to the condition of its time. And I think you have to be, as you grow older, you have to start making those discriminations between yeah. things that simply don't speak to your preoccupations, condition, obsessions, taste, in the deepest possible sense, and things that you think are actually bad. And I think that Bob Hughes, bless him, who, from whom I learned an enormous amount, and I hope I, you know, what's the right word, you know, I, I portrayed um, affectionately this book. I think Bob made a mistake. I think he would have recognized that it was a mistake. It's time to move on when the work no longer speaks to you in that yeah. way. There are a million wonderful subjects in the world to write about. Well, and he did. He moved on to cities. He moved on to and, cities and, yeah. and to, he wrote the great book about Australia. Yes. Um, and particularly the city books, yeah. right? Barcelona, Rome, and so on. And that was yeah. the right thing for Bob to do. That's yeah. where he belonged. That's where his imagination had come to rest. Okay. I'm going to quote George Soros now in The Atlantic, February 1997. The cult of success can become a source of instability in an open society because it can undermine our sense of right and wrong. That is what is happening in our society today. Our sense of right and wrong is endangered by our preoccupation with success as measured by money. Anything goes as long as you can get away with it. 
Well, and the question, respond to <laughs> Well, respond to that, but I think what, what I'm getting at is that this is what the art of that period was suggesting. Oh, I see what you mean. Was, well, here's the thing. Suggesting. That's a little thick. I have enormous respect for George Soros. You know, my philosophical hero is Karl Popper, whom yeah. I share with Soros. I've never met him. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, the Open Society, George well, Popper, yeah, exactly, is a great book, and I think Soros has done amazing work and the reality that he's being victimized now is the kind of Jewish uh, yeah. elder, the, the ultimate elder of Zion is truly obscene. Yeah. At the same time, it's a little thick for George Soros to be saying that, you know. He's already George, made his yes, money, right? he's made his money. Yeah, and yeah. he didn't make his money by doing yeah. good works in the streets of Calcutta. Yeah. He made his money by pursuing it. Yeah. And I'm sure that if you knew the young George Soros, you'd have said he was as ambitious and indeed as avaricious as any human being on earth. So for George Soros to be lecturing other people about the yeah. evils of the pursuit of filthy lucre, I find a little uh, tasteless. Okay. But you're, you're uh, agreeing with the fact that that's what the zeitgeist of that period was, was like? Well, yes and no. I mean, look, um, everybody's ambitious. I mean, as I said, George Soros is certainly ambitious. Adam Smith said that that kind of ambition was the great engine of, of uh, liberal societies. I, what I'd say is, is I don't think that uh, the uh, the painters of that time were any more ambitious than the painters of any earlier time. Yeah. They just the world had changed in ways that made early success possible. Well, and, they also incorporated that into their work, and they incorporated it into their work, and that made it. Uh, and that was where some of its significance was found. You know, yeah. I, one of the only moments of prescience in my entire life as a misspent as an art critic of that period was spotting very early on that Jeff Koons was a, going to be a very significant artist at a time when very few people, I think, saw that. And it was exactly because in that weird, semi-autistic, instinctive way that artists have, his peculiar kinds of ambitions got, uh, what's the right word, phantomorized into uh, the ambitions of the time. And I, I think that that was significant. You say of him, he, uh, he's a mix of desperate sincerity with bizarre bad taste. Yes. That was, that was true. My favorite moment in the 1980s, and my favorite moment in the book, still one that makes me chuckle anyway, is when we were all at dinner um, at some point in the, towards the end of that decade, and uh, Jeff uh, uh, leaned over to Martha, my wife, and said, can you tell me something? What is irony? <laughs> and she sort of dumbfounded and turned and said, well, Jeff, I think you would know. And he said, no, no, everyone is always saying my work is ironic. What is irony? It's ironic that he doesn't know what exactly. irony is. Exactly, and that was the genius of Jeff Koons, was that he was making work that the whole world took as ironic, but he was making as sincerely and passionately as mm. anyone else. That's what gave his work its, uh, its, uh, its vigor, as we might say. You go on then to say uh, about this, this zeitgeist, this, this sort of trying to capture it. This was false, of course. As long as morality exists, money will be mocked. As long as, I think I wrote as long as mortality exists. Money, what what money, did I say? Morality. Oh, you said mortality. Oh, I, I read it as mor Men morality. Misprint. <laughs> what uh, page did I? I don't know. Okay, well, I'll take your word for it. You know, I think I actually know where it is, and maybe okay. it's in a, there may be a very an interesting misprint. I think it's right at the, at the, at the beginning here. Yeah. Um, uh, no, I did write mortality. This you did? Okay. I thought and mortality I said, exists. Well, you know what? Morality works better for me, but... <laughs> Well, for me, what I was trying to say is, is that um, we can't, the truth is, is that no one can actually create value, ultimate value through money. We live as human beings on the mortal coil. Yeah. And I think I go on to say that one of the moving things I remember is that Bob Hughes and Jeff Koons, who were as, uh, as antipodal to each other as two human beings could be, in this relatively short period of time, I bumped in, no, didn't bump into Bob, Bob called, but they both experienced a hugely painful loss mm -hmm. of his son, Jeff, through a kidnapping, not not a death, Bob through his, his son's suicide. Mm -hmm. And their grief was more alike than their differences were different. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, a lesson we cannot learn too often. You say the world gets harder to capture, and there was a counter-life taking place. What was that? Well, that's very much the, the larger theme of this book, and the larger, if you like, the larger architecture of this book. Mm -hmm. It seemed to me that what was going on in that time, still goes on, though in a very different way, uh, was that individual lives were, remained, were becoming more and more intensely private in lots of ways, that all of the kind of, what you would call them, the intermediate institutions that uh, had structured um, 
not just New York life, but uh, life of liberal countries for a long time, feelings of belonging to clubs and uh, associations and to uh, people coming together to argue in coffee houses or in taverns mm -hmm. night after night had largely vanished and been replaced by this combination of very intense private existence and enormous... Yeah, a cocooning of a kind. Mm. Cocoons, if you like, on the one hand, and then this enormously bloated, unreal uh, public existence that went on at the same time. So you sort of were constant. So the 80s were the time of the birth of these kind of monstrous helium balloon figures, of whom Donald Trump was probably the most noxious and shockingly turns out to be the most uh, persistent. But it was also. You put him on the cover of GQ, didn't we, you? I, not me not personally, you. but. The, <laughs> The magazine did. Okay. Yeah, it was the first time he had ever been on a magazine cover. Okay. And so that kind of dialogue between this hugely, uh, Coons himself was that kind of character, this, this grotesque, overblown, garish world, and then the private world of experience was, I encapsulate uh, with the metaphor of the blue room and the big store, and that's how the book is organized. Yes. The blue room is the first half of the book and the big store the second half. Tiny little blue room. Your blue period. Our, our blue yeah. period, absolutely. The 80s, during the 80s, we expected our ambitions to be realized. Today, this is you, today the youth have chastened ambitions. Uh, adequacy seems, quote, bitterly enough. And now I'm going to quote my 24-year-old daughter, who just finished her master's degree and she's on the job market, because mm -hmm. uh, I asked her about this, and she said, my generation is known for being quite optimistic about the future compared to Gen Xers and Boomers. The difference is that generally our idea of success, our ideas of success, are not just defined by what's in our wallets. We want work-life balance, we want experiences more than things, we want jobs that are engaging, and we want our work to have meaning. And then she attached a 68-page Enveronics study to back that up. It's a stirring, Krita. Um, look, I think that that's probably true, but if you examine those words critically, there's a certain amount, forgive me for saying this, there's a certain amount of uh, settling in that, too. You know, and I see it in my own 24-year-old. I don't think it's untrue. And, I, and the point I was making, and what I... And I so, is that the generation I came of age with, which was, I don't know what to call it, the kind of the meager tail end of the boomers, people yeah. coming of age in the 1980s, were still, for good or ill, and it's descriptive, not uh, uh, anything else, were ambitious in more conventional ways and imagined uh, climbing a more conventional ladder of ambition yeah. than my son's generation, or your daughter's generation, in my experience. It's not, there, it's not better or worse, it just is different. In the way it's in the way it's conceived, the, do you think their chances of success, quote unquote? Well, are your as daughter puts it ours? correctly. Your daughter puts it correctly. It's what success, right? Yeah. It, it, you know, a different it, in different set of values. Yeah. I see this yeah. in my own son, okay. who is hugely ambitious in the sense that he can't go to enough classical music concerts or uh, read enough uh, philosophy, but is more indifferent than I might have been at that age to what's the next. Uh, uh, job the next thing yeah. to put it very let's put it very specifically you know in our world the world of uh, writing getting a as I explained in the book you know when we were we, back when when we were kids in the 1980s if you got a job that might sound ridiculous the fiction editor of Playboy or the poetry editor of Mademoiselle you were in within the world of ambition those jobs no longer exist mm -hmm. and when my mm -hmm. assistants go out to on them on the job market like your daughter they usually end up with five or six different gigs that they have to put together. They do work for Kitchen.com and then for the Atlantic Online, mm -hmm. and then they do lots of lots of things. It's it's in many respects a richer existence, but it is it articulates its own ambitions in a different way. Let's move on to art criticism more specifically. Fascinates me that you're, you're you know and, and intrigues me because you're. Talking, we're talking so much about the art parts of the book, yeah. which pleases me enormously, but it's, it's fascinating because in so many of the conversations, interviews, and uh, responses to the book, people like that part the least. They sort of feel that the... I, I didn't put, like it so much. I mean, I, I bridled at it, okay. but I... Uh, we're drawn to I, it, maybe. I like is the wrong word. Well, uh, yeah. Responded I, to it at least. A lot of people well, felt that that section of the book 
was kind of like, oh, I love the whole book, but I, that yeah, whole section yeah. on art was, was too... Well, it's, for me, it's contentious, and for us to have a good conversation, yeah. we need to argue about it. No, no, I'm, I'm, I'm delighted to argue about it, just as it's, so many people would much rather be talking about the... Um, well, that's what part two is. Rats and, rats and, and mice and so on. But go on, please. You mean like uh, Metamorphosis, Kafka's Metamorphosis? Yes, exactly. Yeah. A work of art that doesn't include two forces pulling in starkly opposed directions is never going to live. It's not original, but it's, a, it's, a, it's an astute observation about, about art. Yeah, it's, it's about my own education in looking. You know, if you're trained as an art historian, oh, sir. Yeah. That's my son calling you, what was it? Oh, if you're trained as an art historian, which I was, mm -hmm. and did was in graduate school throughout most of the or much of the the period this book covers, you're taught to uh, understand pictures in terms of their place in a linear narrative. Various linear narratives get proposed. You know, narrative of ongoing progress from the Renaissance on, narrative of ever greater flatness in Clement Greenberg's story. Uh, or then there are all the alternative counter-narratives that were just beginning to emerge. When I was a student, you judge a picture by what it doesn't contain as much as what it does and so on. And in all of those kinds of readings are lead you to believe that the virtues of works of art, uh, if they don't derive from a single thing, that the work of a critic is to define what that thing is that the, the work suggests. And as I got older and looked harder and had broader experience, I realized that every interesting work of art, or almost every one, was poised on contradictory impulses, just as I say in the book. And that's what makes them interesting. You know, uh, take an example at random, you know, Andy Warhol lives as an artist, I think, uh, not because he was the first to see that uh, pop icons could be the material for art, or because he dragged the Campbell's soup can into the art gallery. Not a bit of it. It's interesting because he, on the one hand, had a complicated and very sophisticated sense of design, color, mm. organization. He was an artist in that sense. And yeah, because I mean, Duchamp did everything that did, he yes, did exactly. much earlier. Exactly so. And at the same time, he had this mischievous camp, uh, in some ways deadpan, above all deadpan, appetite for uh, bringing uh, uh, those icons in. Jasper Johns is an interesting painter, not because he was the first to introduce targets and flags and other things that were kind of non-designed designs, but because if you look at that great white flag, on the one hand, it's as blunt a statement as anything that could be, and at the same time, it's as complexly nuanced uh, a poem mm -hmm. as any mm -hmm. painting can be. And it's because he's got a little bit of Walt Whitman in him, a little bit of Henry James in him, that we still vibrate to the, the great Johns from the 1950s. So I think that those kinds of contradictions are what we seek out in art mm -hmm. and in writing, too. And we do art a huge disservice when we reduce its significance to a message or a point or to its occupation of a particular moment in an historical narrative. When we turn works of art into pawns in a game of historical chess, we betray their nature. And put in mind of Keats's uh, negative capability. Yeah, totally. Yeah. As I say, I'm hardly the first person to say this, but yeah. I think that, that, that Keats was right, uh, uh, completely right. He's talking about poetry rather than the visual yeah. arts, yeah. but I think that's true. I'll just quote you here. Being a good judge of art lies in having the ability to tell vital contradiction from vitiating confusion. Now, you say in the book that you're not a very good critic. Oh, you're I'm a better storyteller. I don't, I don't think you said you're, never, you're not cut out to be a real critic. I think that's, that's what right. you said. No, that's true. So, two questions. Why and what does make a good critic that, that you don't seem to be able to... <laughs> and why did the New Yorker hire you? <laughs> Well, I did the job for eight years. I think I'm a very, obviously, I think I'm a very good critic in, in doing it. I don't think I have the critical vocation. They're two different, they're two different okay. uh, 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 callings. I don't think I have the critical calling. People have a critical calling. Bob Hughes is a good example. Pauline Kael. My friend uh, uh, Louis Menand, there's still one more, uh, get enormous uh, and almost complete sense of physical satisfaction from having put uh, the work in its place having you know, contextualized it in the right way or judged it in, the, in a vigorous way. Uh, I, I respect the calling, but it isn't where my heart really beats. My heart beats in storytelling. My heart beats in a different kind of, of writing. And part songwriting. Of, yes. Yeah, songwriting, totally. 
so part of the, the history, the progress of this book is my own growing dissatisfaction with, with writing criticism for the reasons I try and, and present there. Okay. Let's move on to part two of our conversation. We don't have any advertisements to, to break the, the tension. <laughs> a jingle. You could yeah, write a jingle. Exactly. Perhaps you could give us some very short, canned takes on, and this is what you do in, in the book, of some people who were mentors of yours. Yes. Uh, and I like the way you put the, this description of the book, Fables from a Time About a Few People Inside It. That's, yeah, that was my, my intention. I wasn't trying to write um, uh, social history in the 1980s. I was yeah. trying to write uh, not a memoir, but memoirs, so to speak. We've touched on Bob Hughes. Right. Can you give us a little bit more of your sense of the man? Well, Bob was a... Sorry, I preface this by saying, you know, when I was sat down to write this book, and it took me a very long time to write this book. I was supposed to write it in 2002, and it took me until 2017 to get it written. And it was partly because I didn't know how to handle the business of friendships with well-known people because inevitably it can seem like name-dropping mm -hmm. or... Which is some, what you've been accused of. Well, inaccurately. Mm -hmm. um, because the truth is, is name-dropping has nothing to do with talking about people you know well. When we say that name... Yeah, it means you don't know them. You don't yeah. know them well and you yes. choose their name. You pretend like you know them. You pretend that you know them. When you yeah. actually know somebody well, then yeah. it's not name-dropping. No. Then it's... No. Then it's memoir. And so, people are interested in. I'm so very interested second, in Bob Hughes. Right, the second point I was going to make is that invariably, and in this regard, Boswell, the great James Boswell, is my favorite example of it. Mm. Boswell was mocked mercilessly mm. for writing all of that detailed stuff about Dr. Johnson and also about David Hume and Rousseau and so on, and it seemed terribly undignified to the highfalutin critics of his time. And of course, we're desperate for it now. There's nothing in the it's world fantastic. we'd rather yeah. read yeah. because we love to feel that the fascinating people of another time are still alive. And that's what he does, isn't it? That's With right. all the detail and the gossip and the One of my favorite writers. And yeah. so the inevitable price you pay for the act of, of uh, vitalizing interesting people is people saying, oh, it's too much detail and it's too much, yeah. and it's all that too. But that's just the way the world works and there's nothing to be done about it. Yeah. Bob Hughes, in any case, so I preface that by saying, you know, if I'm going to give capsule pictures of famous people, I want to, it has to be understood in that broader frame. Uh, Bob Hughes was a man of limitless appetite, as I've often said. He was in, out of time in lots of ways. He was a man of the 1890s, stuck in the 1980s. Um, he had more poetry committed to memory than any other human being I've known. Huge chunks of Auden, all of Larkin, and I think I say in the book, you could save money on paperback copies of, of modern poets simply by pressing Bob's button. Australian poetry, Les Murray, and so on. And um, he had that kind of, and I, I want to put this carefully, a provincial reverence for culture. And I mean by that that coming out of Australia, the last thing he was was satiated with Western art or with poetry. He was hungry for it because mm -hmm. he didn't get it. He was tired of, tired of Australia. Exactly. Yeah. He wrote a lovely uh, memoir. Yes, a beautiful book it. Yeah. about it. Um, nothing if not critical. Oh, no, no, that was his collection. What was the mm -hmm. memoir called? Things I Didn't Know. Yeah. Things I Didn't Know. And... I shared that a little bit with him. We both came mm -hmm. from corners of the empire. I'm mm -hmm. Canadian and Bob is an Australian. And I think that was one of the things that made him hugely uh, moving uh, person to be with. He was also touchingly vulnerable despite all of his appearance of bluff and bluster. Uh, well, I remember when our son Luke was born, he brought him all of these Australian stuffed animals, which was an yeah. astonishing kind of hallucination in the middle of our living room. <laughs> Bob bending over with all these stuffed animals. Um, he constantly invited me to go fishing with him, and I always managed to evade it because it was truly, I don't know if you know what the expression goyashinahis is, but it's a Jewish term meaning things the Gentiles like, and fishing at five in the morning in a boat with a bottle of scotch, it was not my idea of a good time. Now this came up uh, recently, I, was, uh, I had dinner with some Australians. And I mentioned that, you know, did they know him? They, hadn't, they had heard of him, but the only context in which they'd heard of him was that he had done something wrong in a legal case. Yes. He, Can you clarify that? Yeah, well, what had happened is it's a truly tragic thing. Bob, who was a patriotic Australian, is, is, at some remove from a very uh, uh, distinguished family in Australia, Catholic family, uh, when he had that horrific motor accident, yeah. which is one of those things where... In the, it's a horrible thing to say, but it was. It seemed like God intended to kill him and mm -hmm. then forgot, and Bob was in pain the rest of his life every day. He 
said what was interpreted, he said somebody gave curry to someone else. And Bob said, and it was an old Australian expression, but it was interpreted as a racist uh, put down of the uh, prosecuting attorney. Anyway, it was one of those horrific things where Bob, who was clearly the victim of this thing, was um, put on trial for having caused this accident, which also uh, hurt other people. And it was a hugely wounding thing to Bob and seemed to me, without being familiar with the details of the case, you know, wildly unfair and hardly could have suffered more than Bob did. Richard Avedon. Well, Dick is, you know, uh, is, is central to this book. He's very much the Gandalf of the book. Dick Avedon was a kind of adoptive father for Martha and me as a couple. And, uh, you know, I write about him because I think that one of the uh, great events in anybody's life, if you're lucky enough to have it, is when you have a charismatic mentor who takes you on. Mm -hmm. My friend Meg Wallitzer, who also appears in the book, just written a novel called The Female Persuasion, which is just about that on what used to be called the distaff side, about a young woman who's adopted, so to speak, by a kind of glorious Steinem nor Ephraim figure and how it changes her life. But Dick was a, a man of truly incandescent ebullience. He woke up every day with an appetite for existence that was unshakable. He, the last time we were together, to tell you a story, mm. about two days before he died, actually, it was at 3 a.m. in the Mission in San Francisco, to which we had gone together because one of my many nephews was doing a rap act. Mm. And he was under the rap name of Lex Luthor. His real name was Alexei Gopnik, obviously. And he was doing this. And Dick, 81 years old, and I said to him, I don't think this is going to be particularly good, was had such an insatiable appetite for new experience that there was part of the thing, hmm, could be interesting, could be the next thing, you know, and he had spent his life not in a kind of fashionable way searching for the next thing, but looking for the, the, the next great significance, where it would come from. And that's why there's an Avedon of the 1940s, an Avedon of the 1950s, an Avedon of the 1960s, 70s, and so on. He had a greater responsiveness to experience of that kind than anyone I've ever known. And he suffered from it, too, because, he, you know, people put him down as a journalist. Irving Penn, who was his great rival and friend of a kind, once said, oh, Avedon is the ultimate seismograph. And Dick hated that. It sounds like a great compliment. Mm -hmm. Dick found it enormously insulting. So um, he was all of that, too. But he was also a man of immense personal generosity and, and kindness. He was one of those, you know, the four people you meet in a lifetime who, when the door opens and it's Dick, you know, it's, I think Ken Tynan said once that about Orson Welles. He was... You were never unhappy to have Orson come into the room, and you were never unhappy to have Dick come into the room. You make the point that existential portraits were really fashion portraits, and you had some kind of... Con uh, is it a dis uh, Oh, we argued about it. Oh, sure. What, can you... I didn't sure. really get that. Can yeah, you, uh, sure. You know, he... Though he loved his early fashion work, you know, the, which he had included in, in the book from the show at the Met, he increasingly invested himself as an artist in the, those very uh, uh, spare Giacometti-like portraits of people isolated against white backgrounds looking desperately uh, uh, unhappy with the stigmata of anxiety marked between their forehead, on their forehead and so on. Um, and I always wanted him to see that the two things were in dialogue, that they were parts of one sensibility. They were not exactly as we were talking about before, mm -hmm. that those, that was exactly the fertile contradiction in his work, he was a man who had an enormous gift for female beauty and for graphic uh, extravagance, who also was drawn to and understood the, the infinite sadness of mortality. And that it was exactly when he got those two things in dialogue that his work came most to life. This is the greatest picture maybe he ever made was of Oscar Levant. Don't know if you've seen that one. Where Levant, who was a great man of style and, and wit, is looks borderline, not borderline, looks totally crazy and, and bizarre, but you see both the wit and the madness at the same time. That's the part of Dick's work that I value most and wanted him to value most as well. Kirk Varnado. Well, you know, I don't really write much about Kirk no. in this book, and that was deliberate. I had written a long essay in a previous book, Through the Children's Gate, called okay. Last of Metrozoids, about him. And I, uh, you know, um, I'm a, a, you'll forgive my putting it this way, but I am or try to be an artist rather than a, a chronicler. And I felt that I'd gotten Kirk down right once. And I wasn't, even though, in fact, from a narrative point of view, his absence is felt in this book because he was very much my closest friend and the person with whom I walked through the art world 
most intensely, more than with Bob Hughes, certainly. But I felt that I'd gotten Kirk as right as I could get him in that essay, and I didn't want to get him wrong uh, at, at a, in another context. Okay, finally, part three of our conversation, the, the memoir part, the love, the marriage, and Martha, the beautiful and strange Martha, the champion sleeper yes. Martha. At 18, she was the prettiest girl I had ever seen, and that she should have found me appealing remains the great event and mystery of my life. True. You know, this reminds me, because you, you talk about how you sort of you want to bring home the bacon for her, you want to prove yourself to her, that's what's been driving much of what you're, uh, behind what's uh, your ambition. Yes. And uh, I'm reminded of uh, Mordecai Ritzler's attitude to his second wife. I think that's absolutely apt and true. Florence. Florence. I, yeah. I knew Mordecai reasonably well and had dinner with Florence not a month or so ago. Mm. Oh, no, I think as long as that was in the fall in mm. Toronto. And uh, if that were the case, I'd be very proud. Uh, Mordecai was a man of immense um, uh, Morden. Uh, humor and who tended to had no illusions about the world, but he deeply loved uh, his wife, mm -hmm. and I, I thought that was a deeply gallant and admirable trait. And I, I think that's probably so. Yeah, the book is really a, a love letter to to your wife. You talk about her being stylish, an, an unerring eye for what looked right, and the but two of you. Yeah. Sorry. No, I was going to say, it's very um, powerful for me, very poignant for me to be walking up and down Sherbrooke Street. I dragged my bag from the hotel here earlier because this was the theater, Sherbrooke Street, in those days was the fashionable shopping street. This is almost 40 years ago mm -hmm. in Montreal, to a degree that it isn't any longer. And we would just, you know, she was an 18 year old girl, and we would look in the windows of, of things, and she just had unerring taste for what was beautiful, even though she had no background in it. It just was her her natural flair, and she was ridiculously well-dressed, not fashionably dressed, just no. distinctly dressed, still um, for an 18-year-old girl, and she just was one of those, she just did a natural feeling. I tease the kids now, I say, you know, all your mother really cares about is how you look in your clothes. She wants you to be happy and fulfilled, but she really just cares about how you look in your clothes. And there was a, uh, a lot of that in her. I also realized now, I was walking up and down, and I realized uh, the degree to which I, and I don't think I dramatized it sufficiently in the book, I played the Mr. Sensitivo button, you know, I was, uh, I, I was, for another thing, I had did an interview about my favorite movies with someone, and they, I realized there were all these movies I'd taken Martha to see, La Mont and Early Truffaut, and um, Fellini, and I realized I was working the kind of the rep cinema button extremely hard for, <laughs> the, for the most obvious of, per, of reasons, and Martha, I think, sometimes wondered where, where's... Where Mr. Sensitivo went to, you know. Right? The, and, <laughs> well, you got what you wanted, right? And you got you got what you wanted. Like <laughs> Joseph Conrad wrote, "Mr. Sensitivo, he dead, man." <laughs> I now I just am a I'm one more grabber. You believed in quote poetry, an attitude toward life. What's that? Well, as I say in the book, I think it's everything but rhymed and metered first when we met. We met. We wanted an elevated view of life. We meant that we thought that there was a uh, I don't know what to call it. Uh, an aesthetic dimension, a brighter horizon, uh, a wider shore, and I end the book, and, I, and it's very much the uh, the the journey, if I can use that hackneyed word, of the book, is that you know that the poetry of your imagination gets replaced by the prose of existence, which is another kind of poetry, more enduring kind of poetry. That's what happens to this couple in this in the course of their of their experience. Um, their uh, their poetry turns into prose, as it does for all of us, mm -hmm. and the prose becomes another kind of poetry. That's what happens in the book. And then you have sex, of course, a lot of sex early on, but you talk about long married sex being, quote, furious action and complete predictability, and I had to question, furious, <laughs> still furious action? Well, I'm, it's my favorite passage in the book, because it's my favorite metaphor in the book, uh, in a book probably over-dense with metaphors, is that it long uh, sex and long-term marriage gets to be like a Civil War reenactment. And 
in, in, I mean furious action in that sense, right? It's the simulation of what had once been furious action mm -hmm. by all these guys that go away for the weekend to refight the Battle of Gettysburg or the Battle of Spotsylvania or something. And, and like then we engage in furious action even though the outcome is completely known in advance. Right. So I'm, I will add to that, though that's my favorite metaphor in the book, mm. and I do it in this kind of, in this show that I did, I did last night here at, at, uh, at the Shar, and Martha <laughs> objected to it when I wrote it, and she doesn't like it when I do it, and she finds it, the whole thing, um, embarrassing, but I, I find it irresistible. Well, you also say, I think, that, uh, what is it about critics, the audacity of putting in something about the fact that the stuff that lasts, because you put married sex in here, you insert audacity in a book. That's always the part that critics hate. The part that the critics hate lasts. That's what I'm trying to say. Oh yeah, I, I, I probably said that in an interview somewhere, and yeah. I, I think that tends to be always true. So that, you know, the parts, that the least decorous parts yeah. of what you do tend to be the parts that are the most original, and therefore tend to be. I'm not an unduly audacious writer. I'm hardly, a, you know, a William Burroughs, but, uh, nor would I want to be, but uh, I do think that I was pleased to insert something mildly audacious about married sex, because uh, it was a subject that seemed to me to have been written about too discreetly. On page 101 you say, I'd never been so, or I would never be so happy again. I found that quite sad. I think that was... <laughs> what was I saying that about? I think you were talking about uh, the G something with GQ, oh, you the, come the up with the chic... Right, that, that, that thing. Yeah. Well, I think that was, you know, uh, storytellers, hyperbole. I've been okay. happier since when my kids were born, and, yeah. many, and okay. of course, the truest happiness of life is tends to emerge in, you know, at 9 o'clock in the morning when you've had your coffee and the sun shining, and there's, a, you know, you have, writing seems plausible for, uh, for a bit. But it was certainly true that as a writer, I was never any more happy than I was seeing that giant reproduction of those two dumb words. Yeah. You say that the standard quarrel of every happy marriage is about food. What about sex and money? Well, I think that those, I said, of every happy marriage is about food, right? Yeah, yeah. In unhappy marriages, it seems to me, you quarrel sure. all the time about sex and money. Okay. In happy marriages where sex and money have found their own level, or at least... Well, actually, unhappy level, marriages, you argue about everything. Yeah, yes. Well, that's, that's Tolstoy would have Yes, said. As, as I say in the, in the book, I think, someplace, in an unhappy marriage... You argue every day, but it's always about a different thing. It's a new thing. In a happy marriage, you argue every day, but it's always about the same thing. We, Martha and I, have kind of come to our piece. I did a lecture last night, and they handed me the check, as lecture people will do. Mm -hmm. And I was just on the phone with her, and I, she said, so how much was it for? I said, oh, I haven't opened it yet. She said, you haven't opened it yet. And that was long ago we realized that she would keep the books, and I would bring home a chunk of the bacon, mm -hmm. um, and we still have that. So we solved the money problem many years ago. I'd just like to hit you with a few of your beautiful phrases and, and advice. I love what your father told you uh, when you left uh, Montreal. Never underestimate the other person's insecurity. What a great piece isn't of that advice. A, isn't that a fantastic piece of advice? Yeah. It transpired not five blocks from here. Yeah, you know, right at the old uh, bus station, mm -hmm. uh, which is five blocks from here. Um, my dad was, still is, a man of immense uh, instinctive wisdom, and he was a dean for much of his professional life uh, of students, so he had a lot of kind of, and he had six kids, so he had a lot of paternal wisdom. And the, of all the many wise things he said to me, the two that I've shaped my life by, never underestimate the other person's insecurities. And whenever I've put a foot significantly wrong, it's because I did. And the other thing he told me, which isn't in the book, is in a conflict, never think about what's fair, think about what you want. More people go wrong because they feel you know, in a professional conflict or in a legal thing, they think about, that's not fair, it's yeah. not just, I'm yeah. going to get it. And or in a marriage, it's like you're being yes, selfish. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Don't think about what's fair. Think about what you really want. And what you really want is the thing to go after because life is not going to be fair. And you're not being selfish by yeah. doing that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Just think about what the goal is here, not don't think about what's just. And mm -hmm. I think that that's, that was hugely wise. And it was certainly wise in, uh, in New York. A line about intellectuals, I love this. Intellectuals believe that making up new names for things is the same as having new thoughts. Oh, that, the, you're the first person to catch I like that thought too, I think it's real, you know, and I was trying to, it was part of a little riff I had about 
shop talk, about the pleasures of shop talk. And it's true that in, in the academic world, which I was beginning to rebel against, and I come from an academic family, and this thing, that I was aware of that, that intellectuals do think that, that you make up a new word and you've had a new thought. Uh, in the fashionable world, which I was beginning to enter, at least the difference is you make up a new word and at least you have a new fashion. But it's more, it has a wittier self-consciousness about it. A sense of trust in the universe is the greatest gift we can give our kids. Yeah, I, you know, I often think about my father in that way um, uh, because he, the universe is not a benevolent place. You know, we all could be run over by a car, trapped by a serial killer, or by a disease tonight. But my father chose to see the universe as an essentially salubrious place, at least for his kids. And he always gave us that sense that things would work out, things were going to be okay, mm -hmm. no matter what the, however... You kind know. of a confidence. Yes. Or, a, like, uh, or also but, a security. Right. Not a confidence of saying, like, go out and no. fight for it. You'll bring home every prize. Not at all. Just it's going to be okay. You know, you're, yeah. you're, you're worrying unduly. And I've always noticed that men who have loving fathers tend to have confidence in the world. I, I think I mentioned in the book that I knew a wonderful critic, uh, Wilfred Shee. Mm -hmm. Shee. Catholic. Catholic. Right? Yeah. De devoutly Catholic. Man, of, did he have a, a, a publishing house? Yes, his father did. Yeah. Sheedon Ward, great yeah. Catholic publishing house. Anyway, his father he had a very loving relationship with an essentially with a hugely benevolent father. And Bill Sheed went through more plagues and suffering than Job. He had polio, and then he had a drinking problem, and then he got cancer of the tongue. And he was never really diminished by it. His buoyancy was never diminished by his setbacks. And I realized it was because he still had his father in the front seat. And he thought it was going to be okay. It was going to work out. Um, and mm. I think that is the greatest gift you can give your kids, a sense that the universe... Now, of course, there's an illusion built into it because the universe is not a benevolent place, in mm. fact. But I think it is... Well, it's neutral, let's say. Yes, it's neutral. So you want them to feel that it can be benevolent. And the people who I think are bad parents tend to frighten their kids. Yeah. About, and frightening your kids is the worst thing you can do. Just winding down here. The secret I'm of... Enjoying this. Take great, good. Uh, the secret of writing is to go places and listen to people and to write with wild exactitude. Yeah. You suggest that would be a good name, name for, for a book. Yeah, yeah, if I ever wrote, which I don't think I ever will, wrote a book about writing, that's what I call it. It's a line of Joe Mitchell's, a phrase of Joe Mitchell's, which he had not, which was totally spontaneous in his part. I was asking him about you know, the, the great New Yorker writers of his generation, Thurber and, and uh, Mitchell, and Thurber and Liebling and so on. Mm. And he said, oh, none of them could spell and no idea of grammar, but each one had a wild exactitude of his own. And I knew instantly what he meant by that. He meant that the, coming back to our subject, that the, the fertile contradiction of being as precise as you possibly could be about the surface of the world, and at the same time having some obviously extravagant, almost surrealist passion beneath it. It's what we love in Mitchell, it's what we love in Gogol, it's what we love in Thurber, it's mm -hmm. what we love in, in, in almost every writer, but particularly in those kinds of more miniaturist fable-making writers, and it's always been my, my motto, a wild exactitude. And the other thing about, you know, go places and see people was, again, part of my own emancipation as a writer from being a graduate student. You know, Chekhov says someplace that he spent his life uh, thrashing the, uh, the surf out of himself, meaning the habits of obsequiousness that the surf has. And I've spent my life thrashing the graduate student out of myself and the habits of contentiousness and thesis building. I obviously have not been successful at it completely or even largely. But I did learn in my early years at the New Yorker when I would just write anonymous reporting uh, two or three times a week, you know, thousands of, or hundreds anyway, of pieces, that, the ma that there's nothing more powerful than listening. There's nothing more powerful mm -hmm. than going to the one odd person and getting the one reverberant quote. Yeah. And that we overburden ourselves with, uh, with writing when so much good writing is just um, accurate listening. Well... So much good interviewing is about listening. That's what I uh, exactly. That's yeah. And you, and you you're, you do it. You have to guide it. So you you just go down the middle of the questions rather than engage in with the thing. I think that's true. It's one of the things I learned. In, uh, and it's been a pleasure. Just to add, I was uh, just back out for the first time doing a long profile for the first time in years, just because the shape my life is not years, but a couple of years. The shape my life has taken, and I just love doing it. You know, just um, being in rooms with with uh, good talkers mm -hmm. makes, makes writing very easy. <laughs>
Well, you're making my interview very easy. Well, that's good. I, then, I'm, then I'm paying it back, as the kids say, to the people I listen to. Tumor is the size of a grapefruit, a rat always the size of a cat. Yes, haven't you ever noticed that tumors always compared to fruit? <laughs> and, and rats are always compared to other, other animals, cats, that, or even uh, you know, cars or something, inevitably. Yeah. I liked what you say about uh, memoir and uh, about making private life public. It's treacherous, but be not afraid, because if you don't, we're all locked in terror. Yeah, I, of all the things that writing does, you know, persuade us to vote for the right person rather than the wrong one, to bring in gun control, organizes our social existence, of all the things that writing does, for me the most essential is that it makes private life public. But I don't, that don't mean it just it spills secrets, but that it takes the inner life that we all have and makes it a part of the, the common conversation. And it's but, an, but what about this... this Confession culture. Well, I don't mind the confession culture. What I mind is the atrocity culture. You know, the the, the book about how my you know, uh, the victim culture. I think is different thing than than confession culture. Because if you think about it, we don't like what you call confession culture, and I often don't like it either because it seems to us witless and unaware. You know, when we read, um, who can we indict here? Um, <laughs> James Fry or one of those people. It seems too melodramatic, hysterical. But when we read Joan Didion about her loss of her husband, or when we read... Uh, it's a very affecting movie. Hugely affecting movie. Or when we read in a, in a fictional mode, which we know to be uh, real in every way. We read Philip Roth on uh, aging, let's say. We're, you know, we're overcome by it. We read Philip Roth on masturbation. Our mm -hmm. first thing is, oh my God, and our second thought is, him too? That's and that's right. the, that's Seeing the yourself. response. Yes, yeah. and that's, the, that's what writers do, and that's our, that's our function. And... Uh, inevitably, if you're struggling to make private life public, as we were talking about before about you know married sex, people are squeamish about private life being made public, not because it's egotistical, but because it's disturbing. Because your private life is as, as a squalid, and your inner life is as squalid as the next person's, yeah. and that's one of the things that writing uh, writing makes us aware of. That the you know the music of our all of our minds is monstrous, and that you know, it was Goya understood, and. The, that's our, you know, to be a little pompous about it, that's our humanity. That's what we, I was just rereading uh, um, Mordecai Richler's great novel, Solomon Gursky was here. A great, certainly Some great, suggest that's the greatest Canadian novel. I would totally subscribe to yeah. that idea. I think mm -hmm. Alice Munro might be the greatest Canadian writer, but mm -hmm. I think that Solomon Gursky is the greatest Canadian novel. Mm -hmm. And it's all about the, you know, it's all what, you know, it's a Shonda to the Jews, Solomon Gursky. It's all the stuff you're not supposed to say. Mm -hmm. It's impious. It's wildly impious and obscene and accurate and truthful and, and persuasive. Finally, you say that you never get over how fortunate you've been. And uh, I'd like to say I've been very fortunate in having been able to interview you. Thank you very much. It was a delight to talk to you. I've been speaking with Adam Gopnik, his latest book, memoir, work of criticism, anything else? It's a self-confessional uh, tale, um, warning. <laughs> Warning example, uh, do not as I did children book. It's called At the Stranger's Gate. It's published by Knopf, both in Canada Can and Knopf US. Canada and, and Knopf US, but separately by the two, because right. I like to keep my Canadian uh, identity uh, alive. Thanks again. Pleasure talking to you.